welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Jason Cherry on September 4th, Lord's Day Service. for the month of September, a Sunday school called Studies in Church History. And we're going to be looking at four different uh, elements of church history. And today we're going to be focusing on the ten waves of persecution in the early church. The ten waves of persecution really from A.D. 64 to A.D. 313. And the reason we need to study this is because of what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 10 starting in verse 24. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And so the logic of scripture is that if we are saved by the sufferings of Christ, then how can we expect anything less than to suffer for our Christ? And that's been the pattern of the church from the earliest of days, that Christ suffered and we suffer also. And the apostles understood this well. For example, considered the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. It said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so persecution exists in the world from the earliest of days because of Jesus' words in John chapter 15 verse 19. The world hates you. And the application of that hate often is persecution. Often persecution through the hands of a government. And the apostles understood this well. A student is not above his teacher. Jesus suffered, therefore we will suffer. The world hates Christ. It can't get at Christ, and so it gets at you, the church. And that is the cause of persecution. And so the disciples understood this well, and all except John were martyred for the gospel. For example, the apostle Simon Peter was crucified upside down in Rome under the reign of Nero. And the story goes that Peter didn't want to die as Jesus died, and so he asked to be crucified upside down. And this was a violent time in the mid-AD 60s when the Roman emperor was going after Christians. The apostle Andrew was scourged and crucified in Achaia, and he was known to have spread the gospel there, to have spread the gospel to Cynthia, Asia Minor, and Greece. And for his trouble, he was crucified. The Apostle James, the son of Zebedee, he was executed by Herod Agrippa I. And this is recorded for us in Acts chapter 12. The Apostle Philip was crucified in Asia Minor. And so he is known to have converted the wife of a proconsul and had a great success in Asia Minor with the gospel. And one tradition says he was hung, but the the likelihood is that he was crucified as well. The Apostle Matthew was slain by the sword in Ethiopia. Now, he may have also traveled to Persia and Macedonia to spread the gospel, but tradition has it that he was uh, killed in Ethiopia. 
The Apostle Thomas was run through with a lance in India. The Syrian Christians living in southwest India provide us the information that Thomas visited them, brought the gospel to them, and then was martyred because of it. The Apostle Bartholomew was flayed to death in Armenia. So Armenia, that's kind of ancient Armenia was like modern day Iraq and Syria. The Apostle James, the son of Alphaeus, he was stoned and clubbed to death in Syria. And Josephus gives us evidence of James' death in his writings. The Apostle Thaddeus was killed by arrows in Edessa. Edessa is spelled with an E, that's a city in northern Greece. And so Edessa became a majority Christian area during the early church. The gospel had great success there thanks to the work of the Apostle Thaddeus. And his martyrdom went a long way in establishing the gospel there. The apostle Simon, the zealot, was attacked by a mob in Persia and killed. And the reason for that was he refused to sacrifice to the sun god. And so he was mobbed and killed. And then lastly, the apostle Matthias. We read about Matthias in Acts chapter 1. He replaces Judas. And you might think he won a great prize when the lot chose Matthias. But what he actually won was burning to death in Syria. That's how he was killed. He's known to have done much missionary work in Syria, and he was also martyred for the faith. And so, Jesus said, a teacher, or excuse me, a student is not above his teacher. And when he said those words to the disciples, he was prophesying about their death. Christ suffers and is put to death. The disciples of Christ suffer and are put to death. And this is partly why the New Testament talks so much about suffering and persecution. We see it featured in many of the letters throughout the New Testament. And true saving faith perseveres through persecution. And that's one of the themes we see throughout the New Testament. That true saving faith perseveres through persecution and suffering. And so the early church experienced persecution beyond just the martyrdom of the apostles. The early church experienced 12 waves of persecution that are associated with 10 different Roman emperors. And this persecution lasted about 250 years. It begins around AD 64 and lasts until the beginning of the 4th century. And so for us, being a Christian means that our loyalty and devotion to Christ persists, even to the point of death. And I think that perhaps is the greatest lesson we have to learn from these stories in church history. That true saving faith perseveres even to the point of death. The early church provides us an example of what this means. They suffered death, they suffered torture, imprisonment, and the confiscation of property in the name of their Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's quickly look at the 10 waves of persecution that are associated with the 10 Roman emperors. And so the first of these is the Emperor Nero. So you know the Emperor Nero, he ruled from AD 54 to AD 68. And the stories of Nero are known probably most well for us Christians since he was living during the time of the apostles. Nero infamously set fire to Rome and then blames the Christians. And the result of this is that Christians are crucified. And the story goes that Nero himself even burns Christians in his own personal garden. And Nero beheads the Apostle Paul, either AD 66 or AD 67, and then he kills Peter around AD 66 or AD 67. 
And so the extreme cruelty of Nero to the Christians produced pity from the commoners in Rome because they saw how the Christians were being treated. They could see through the lies of their government. They knew that the Christians were being blamed for things that the Christians didn't do. And this produced pity from the Romans towards the Christians. The second wave of persecution comes through the reign of Domitian. Domitian ruled from AD 81 through AD 96. So Domitian requires his subjects to refer to him as Lord and God. And the people are expected to offer a sort of sacrifice to Domitian. They're supposed to offer incense to the genius of the emperor. And as you might expect, Christians refused to do this. They refused to participate and suffered sporadic persecution as a result. And Eusebius, the, the church historian, he wrote his ecclesiastical history in the 4th century. I'm going to be reading to you a few quotations from his book. This is what he said about Domitian during his reign. Domitian, indeed having exercised his cruelty against many, and unjustly slain no small number of noble and illustrious men at Rome, and having met without cause, punished vast numbers of honorable men with exile and the confiscation of their property, at length established himself as the successor of Nero in his hatred and hostility to God. The third wave of persecution happens under the emperor Trajan. Trajan ruled from AD 98 to AD 117. And the historical record contains a correspondence between Trajan and one of his governors. The governor of Pontus and Bithynia was named Pliny the Younger. And the governor there is asking Trajan for advice. And this is what Trajan writes to him. He says, they are not to be sought out. Again, he, they being the Christians. They are not to be sought out. If they are informed against and the charge is proven, they are to be punished. And with this reservation that if anyone denies that he is a Christian and actually proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, he shall be pardoned as a result of his recantation, however suspect he may have been with respect to the past. Now, the church father, Ignatius of Antioch, writes a letter to the Christians living in Rome during this time. And this letter provides some more insights into the sort of persecutions and more importantly, the sort of persevering faith that the Christians exhibited during the persecutions. And this is what Ignatius of Antioch writes to the Romans. He says, I declare to all the churches, and I bid all men know, that of my own free will I die for God, unless you should hinder me. I exhort you, that you not be an unseasonable kindness to me. Let me be given to the wild beasts, for through them I can attain unto God. I am God's wheat, and I am ground by the death of wild beasts, that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. Rather entice the wild beasts, that they may become my sepulcher, and may leave no part of my body behind, so that I may not, when I am fallen asleep, be burdensome to anyone. Then shall I be truly a disciple of Jesus Christ, when the world shall not so much as see my body. Supplicate the Lord for me, that through these instruments I may be found a sacrifice to God." The fourth wave of persecution happens under the emperor Hadrian. Hadrian ruled from AD 117 to AD 138. So Hadrian, while allowing for localized persecution during his reign, practices some sort of moderation compared to some of the emperors that came before him. 
Hadrian says that cases against Christian must be brought to trial and they must be proven guilty through the ordinary legal process. Slanderous attacks and false witnesses against Christians were forbidden and they were punished. And so there, there is some moderation compared to those who came before him. Now that being said, if you were proven to be a Christian, you were still punished. But he didn't allow false testimony against those Christians. And so it's during the reign of Hadrian that the Christian apologists begin writing their treatises. And some of these are well known. They've been preserved through the historical record. For example, the writings of Justin Martyr. And so you see these Christian apologists and they begin writing to the emperor, writing to Hadrian. They're appealing intellectually to the power of the state. And they're trying to reason with him. And they're trying to explain to him why he ought not to imprison Christians and persecute Christians through the legal system. They're pointing out the injustice of it all. And I think we see here an example of how Christians should love justice and appeal respectfully to the state. And so we see this first example of the Christian apologist at work during the reign of Hadrian. And Christians in the New Testament are commanded to pray for our civic leaders. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, it is worth noting that we don't pray for them, we complain about them, and in that we disobey the Lord. We need to pray for them. And this is modeled for us by the Christian apologist. We also see in Mark chapter 6, through the example of John the Baptist, that we should publicly speak out against the wickedness of rulers. That we have an authority, or we have the authority of the Lord and a duty to publicly speak out against the wickedness of rulers, like John the Baptist did with Herod and his illicit marriage. We see in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, that we should seek justice and correct oppression. And we see in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that we should make a defense of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And so that's part of our duty in the public sphere. And we see all of that on display during the reign of Hadrian with these early Christian apologists. The fifth wave of persecution comes under the reign of the emperor Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius rules from AD 161 to AD 181. So during his reign, Rome experiences a lot of disasters, a lot of natural disasters. There's floods, there's earthquakes. And so Marcus Aurelius decides to blame the Christians. And he tells, he tells the people that the reason this is happening to us is because the Christians will not worship our gods. And so their punishment on us is all these natural disasters. And so he issues a cry for Christian blood to appease the gods and so stop the natural disasters. And this plays itself out in horrific fashion, in particular in Gaul. Gaul is modern-day France. Many martyrs suffer greatly there. So again, I'll read you a passage from Eusebius' account. He says, For by means of these, the greater part of those that fell away again retrace their steps. And now, living again and strengthened in their faith, they approached the tribunal. They were again interrogated by the governor. Wherefore, he also examined them again. And as many as appeared to have the Roman citizenship, these he beheaded. The rest he sent away to the wild beasts. So we see they were being beheaded and they were sent to the wild beasts as part of that persecution. And it's also during the reign of Marcus Aurelius that we get this incredible story of Blandina. This famous story in church history also recorded for us by Eusebius. And this is an extended passage, but it's one of the more famous stories. And so I'm going to read it to you. 
So here it is in the words of Eusebius. It says, After all these, on the last day of the shows of the gladiators, Blandina was brought forth together with Ponticus, a youth about 15 years old. They were brought in every day to see the tortures of the rest. Force was also used to make them swear by their idols. And when they continued firm and denied their portended divinity, the multitude became outrageous at them, so that they neither had compassion for the youth of the boy nor regarded the sex of the woman. Hence they subjected them to every horrible suffering. They led them through the whole round of torture, striving to force them to swear, but were unable to effect it. Ponticus, indeed, encouraged by his sister, so that the heathen could see that she was encouraging and confirming him, nobly bore the whole of these sufferings and gave up his life. But the blessed Blandina, last of all, as a noble mother that had animated her children and sent them as victors to the great king herself, retracing the ground of all the conflicts her children had endured, hastened at last with joy and exultation at the issue, as it were invited to a marriage feast and not to be cast a wild beast. And thus, after scourging, after exposure to the beasts, after roasting, she was finally thrown into a net and cast before a bull. And when she'd been well tossed by the animal and now had no longer any sense of what was being done to her, by reason of her firm hope, confidence, and faith in her communion with Christ, she too was dispatched. Even the Gentiles confessed that no woman among them had ever endured sufferings as many and as great as these. You see, it's stories like these that we need to hang on to. Because we all fear, what will I do when the pain hits? Will I be able to persevere in the faith if that is the Lord's will for my life? And rest assured that we have these examples in church history that the Spirit empowers His people to persevere in the faith even when it hurts, even when the wild beasts are tossing you about the arena. Moving on, the sixth wave of persecution from the sixth emperor is the emperor Septimus Severus. He rules from AD 193 to AD 211. So this sixth wave of persecution involves the spread of anti-Christian propaganda throughout the major cities. And it's from the reign of Septimus Severus that the church gets the incredible story of Perpetua. Again, one of the more famous stories in the early church. Perpetua is this woman. She's this courageous woman. She is, she's educated, which already sets her apart. She knows Greek and she knows Latin. And while she's in prison for her faith, she writes a diary. Part of this diary has been preserved in the historical record. And so this is probably the first written thing we have passed down through history from a Christian woman. And Perpetua is 22 years old. She's a mother and a recent convert to Jesus Christ. And so while she's in prison, they let her bring her baby into prison with her. Perpetua's father is a nobleman. He has some power, he has some influence. And he visits her in prison three times, trying to convince her to recant. And he's saying, listen, you've got this baby, just tell them you don't worship Jesus and you can go free and care for your baby. And from her diary, we get this account. He said to her, have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperors. I will not, I retorted. Are you a Christian, said father? And I said, yes, I am. Then father passed sentence on all of us. We were condemned to the beasts and we returned to prison in high spirits. 
And praise the Lord for this kind of faith. And this kind of faith is possible in our own day. The seventh wave of persecution comes through the emperor Decius. Decius rules from AD 249 to AD 251. So Decius oversees the first empire-wide persecution. You have to understand, most of the persecutions that I've been talking about are localized. The, empire, the, the Roman Empire was huge. You could, you could very well be a Christian living in one part of the Roman Empire and not, not have experienced any persecution. Many of these persecutions were localized in the big cities like Rome and elsewhere. But Decius oversees, or at least tries to carry out, an empire-wide persecution. And as a politician, things aren't going well, and so he tries to blame someone else. Who's he going to blame? Well, the Christians. The Christians are to blame. And so there's this economic decline during his reign that affects the entire empire. And he says that the gods are getting even with them because we're not properly offering sacrifices to them. There's too many in our midst that are not honoring the gods properly. And who is that? Well, it's the Christians, of course. Christians are blamed for all of this. And so what Decius does is he kind of uh, he creates this, this renewed worship of the Roman gods. And he requires everyone to go and worship the gods. Christians, many of them at least, refused. And the Christians were placed in a very difficult situation because you were required to present a libellius, which is basically a certificate. You go, you offer the sacrifice, and then you get a certificate. And then you carry that around, and that's your papers to prove I've done it. And then when they ask to see your papers, if you don't have them, well, then you get thrown into prison. And so the Christians who did not participate are now in a very difficult situation. And the Christians start reacting in very different ways. Many of the Christians during this era buckle under the pressure, and they go and they make the sacrifice so that they can have their certificate. And they reason among themselves, and they say, yes, but now I'll be here to care for my children. You see, this is good and right for me to offer sacrifices to the gods, because now I can care for my children. And under that kind of logic, there was a massive apostasy during the reign of Decius. Other Christians say, well, I'm not going to make the sacrifice, but what I'll do is I'll bribe the local official so I can purchase a labelli. So that, I can have the so that I can have the certificate without actually having to sacrifice. And then the third group of Christians boldly refused to offer sacrifices or to acquire a certificate through the other means. And they were martyred for their faith. And so now the church is divided. You've got these different groups who responded to this heavy-handed persecution in different ways. And it creates deep division within the church. And you can imagine the tension. Just think about it. What if your relative or your friends are martyred? And then the other Christians who denied Christ come back to the church once it's all over and want back in. What are you supposed to do with them? Do you give them mercy? Do you give them forgiveness? How do you think through this? It was a very divisive moment in the history of the church. And so, do we forgive the deniers or not? Or was their denial of Christ evidence that they're not really part of the church, and so should we keep them out? I mean, on the one hand, didn't Peter deny Christ publicly, only then to be restored as a leader? So then why maybe, maybe these people can be restored? Maybe even they can become leaders like Peter. But then on the other hand, didn't Jesus say, 
So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And you can see how the argument would unfold. Each side's got an argument to be made. Each side's pointing to scripture. And it created deep divisions within the church. There's a lot more to that story. Maybe we can do that in another session. We need to move on now to the eighth wave of persecution. This is from the Emperor Valerian. So Valerian was emperor from AD 253 to AD 260. And so at first he tolerates the Christians. In fact, for the first six years of his rule, he tolerates the Christians. But after six years, the emperor begins persecuting them. And he's got a couple of tactics. He deports some Christians. Other Christians, though, he sends to the mines. It's a forced labor kind of situation. And the Christians were strictly forbidden not to assemble. And so by this time, though, unlike under the reign of Decius, the church does not bend. There is no mass apostasy under Valerian. Under Valerian's rule, Christian leaders are executed. Church property is confiscated. Sixtus II and seven other deacons are killed. And during this time, Cyprian writes a letter to, to some of the Christians. He writes a letter to nine Christians who are suffering in the mines. And here's a, here's a passage from the letter. It starts out, Cyprian, to the brethren in the mines, martyrs of God the Father Almighty and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the nature of the mines is changed, and the places which previously had been accustomed to yield gold and silver have begun to receive them. Moreover, they have put fetters on your feet and have bound your blessed limbs in the temples of God with disgraceful chains. Such things are ornaments, not chain, nor do they bind the feet of the Christians for infamy, but glory them for a crown. This temporal and brief suffering, how shall it be exchanged for the reward of a bright and eternal honor? Farewell in the Lord. Notice how he encourages them. He points them to their future glory. And of course, he's getting that from the New Testament. That's how the New Testament also encourages us when we are suffering. That we can persevere through hardship and through suffering because we know that this is only a temporary thing and that eternity is forever and that in eternity we will receive the reward of Christ. Now, Cyprian, who wrote that letter, that letter, is later executed for his faith. And this is also the era where Origen is put on the rack. He's, he's a famous Christian. A lot of his writings have been preserved through the record. So Origen is put on the rack, which is a torture device which stretches you until you come apart. And he, of course, dies from those injuries. But what's really interesting is that after Valerian's persecution, the church starts to grow wildly. Now, at every phase of these, uh, you know, these different phases of persecution, the church experiences different elements of growth. But under Valerian, the church starts to grow very rapidly. And it reminds us of what Tertullian said. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, Tertullian lived a generation before the, the Valerian persecution, but that statement's been repeated over and over again, and it's usually true. It is, in fact, the case that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, at least so far as church history goes. Now, that's not an absolute rule. <laughs> there are exceptions. You see what the Muslims have done to the area they've conquered. Uh, the church has not grown there. It has reduced. So Tertullian's words are proverbial. It's often that, often that way, but it's not always that way. The ninth wave of persecution 
happens under Diocletian. Diocletian ruled from AD 284 to AD 305. Now at this point in time, the Roman Empire is divided east and west. Again, that's, that's a whole other story. Maybe we can do that another time. And Diocletian is the official emperor in the east. And he oversees what's known as the Great Persecution. And so the Great Persecution lasts for 10 years. And so during this time, Christians are expelled from public office. Christians are expelled from the army or from any ordinary service in the empire. Oracles are spoken out against them. And we're told that any accusation against Christians is received and accepted as true. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's made up. It doesn't matter if it's actually true. During this time, the churches are destroyed. Church services are banned. The scriptures are seized and burned. And the prisons are so full of Christians that they can't even hold anymore. And that then takes us to the 10th wave of persecution. The 10th wave of persecution happens under the emperor Galerius. So Galerius ruled from A.D. 305 to A.D. 311. And so this is known as the era of the martyrs. Galerius, during this time, imposes a system of universal sacrifices, meaning everybody in the empire is required to offer these sacrifices. And if you refuse to offer the sacrifices, the penalty is death. And so the Christians that refuse to sacrifice are treated ruthlessly. This is when they're thrown to the beasts, or they're burned, or they're stabbed, or they're crucified, or they're put on the rack. Thousands of Christians during the reign of Galerius are either killed or maimed. The carnage is horrific. The bloodshed is so great that the masses of people are sickened by it all. They're sickened by what Galerius is doing to these people. And during this whole thing, one of the things that's amazing is that there's no record of Christians taking up arms against Galerius. They do not take up weapons to defend themselves in some sort of military fashion. They do not fight back with weapons. And perhaps for here, at least for this moment in church history, we get an example of what Jesus meant about turning the other cheek. And that then leads us to A.D. 313. In A.D. 313, this is where the Emperor Constantine passes the Edict of Milan, which protects Christianity and makes persecution against Christians illegal. And that brings to a close this, this era, the ten waves of persecution that happens in the early church. Perhaps we can have a session on Constantine one day in the future. So when we look at these stories, this overview of the ten waves of persecution during this 250-year period, there's a lot for us to learn. So what can we learn from this? What are the lessons we, as the modern church, need to take from these stories? I think there's seven things we should learn from these stories. The first thing we should learn from these stories is that when Christians suffer well, that is, when they suffer with dignity, when they suffer with their faith intact, people notice and the church tends to grow. Now, this is made clear for us in the book of Acts. This is one of the themes of the book of Acts, that the church is being persecuted, and yet the church is growing. And we see this also during the ten waves of persecution. And honestly, we see this during the present day as well. Look at what's happening in China. 
For decades, the Chinese Communist Party has tried to put down Christianity. And yet today, Christianity thrives in China in a way that it didn't 60 or 80 years ago. And all of this thriving is happening under the nose of the Communist Party. And so when Christians suffer well, when Christians suffer, suffer with dignity and with faith, people notice and the church tends to grow. I think the second thing we need to learn from this era of suffering in the church is that we must prepare ourselves to suffer. We never know when we're going to be the ones that the Lord wills to fall under such suffering. We must be prepared to suffer. Churches must prepare their people to suffer. Parents must prepare their children to suffer. Because sometimes people suffer not even because of some bureaucratic government. Sometimes people suffer just because of the Lord's discipline. For example, we read in Hebrews 12 about this. And so we need to prepare our people to suffer because sometimes that suffering is not persecution. Sometimes it's just the Lord's discipline for our sin. And sometimes it's really hard to distinguish between the two. And so we must always prepare ourselves to suffer. We must prepare our families and our churches to suffer. And of course, sometimes we're called to suffer for the gospel, like we read about in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. And so obedience to Jesus is not a promise of an easy life. Obedience to Jesus is not a promise that we will be free from suffering. You are not guaranteed a life of ease and prosperity and good health. You read very little of creature comforts in the New Testament. That's not a theme. That's not really even part of any of the New Testament. That's not the promise for you in this life. And in church history, it's been the exact opposite. In church history, we see the people of God more times than not suffering under persecution. And so, obedience to Jesus may very well lead to suffering. We need to realize that. And we must prepare ourselves to suffer well for the glory of God. And yes, it's true that the kingdom starts small and grows big. And as it grows big, that the persecution would theoretically, theoretically, grow smaller. But we don't know how long that will take. And furthermore, just because Christians may not be fed to the lions right before the end of the era, before Christ returns, I think the godliest among us will always be the odd man out. The godliest among us will always be misunderstood. They will always be mistreated and misconstrued as a result. And so we must be prepared for that. We must prepare to suffer. The third thing we can learn from these stories in church history is that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And of course we read about this in Hebrews chapter 12. We're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, which means we are only hurting ourselves when we ignore these events in church history. These are given to us as inspiring examples. We read in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's a discipleship pattern that's meant to, meant to persist, that we are to imitate those who are honoring the Lord. And that means in church history, we should seek out those who are honoring the Lord and imitate them. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and they are models for us. And by looking at their faith, that can be part of your own perseverance of faith in suffering. 
The prospect of suffering is frightening, and you don't need a dictatorial government to suffer. We have things like cancer. We have sickness. We have all manner of reasons why there is suffering in this fallen earth. And that will not be made right until Christ returns. And so these examples in church history, whether they were suffering because of some physical ailment or at the hands of a dictatorial government, they show us that the gospel is well worth suffering for. And so look to the great cloud of witnesses as inspiration on how to persevere. Another lesson to be learned from these stories of persecution in church history is it's a reminder that this world is not our home. This world, as it is right now, is not our home. We're told in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that Christians are citizens of heaven. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, that we await the heavenly Jerusalem. And that has not been fully manifest yet, and so we're not home yet. And so we persevere through hardship, knowing that this life and this world as such is not all that there is. This is a big theme of Romans chapter 8 as well. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, we're told that we are co-heirs with Christ and that we will one day be with Christ. We will be at the right hand of Christ where there are pleasures forevermore, we read in Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. And so we are persevering to that end. We are longing for that end. This world as such is not our home. The fifth lesson to be learned from these stories is we need to remember that suffering and, or suffering and persecution for the faith still happens today and that we should pray for our brothers and sisters at home and abroad who are suffering for Christ. This is important. Part of God's design for our brothers and sisters to persevere is that we are praying for them. And so whether it's Nigeria or China or elsewhere, there are many Christians today who are suffering in just as brutal and horrific a scenario as these stories I recounted to you. We should remember them. We should pray for them. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. The sixth lesson to learn from these stories is that the reason for Christian persecution is not politics. The reason for Christian persecution is not because of cultural differences or sociological differences. It's not because of economic things. The primary reason Christians suffer, just looking at the history of the church, the primary reason Christians suffer is because they think that Christ is the only way. That's the thing that invites the persecution, especially of governments. At the core of the world's persecution of Christians is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is the heart of why you suffer. We read earlier from John chapter 15, verse 19, where Jesus told the disciples straightforward, The world hates you. The world hated me, and now they hate you. And the reason the world hates you is because you think Jesus Christ is the only way. We have to remember that. It's not politics. Ultimately, it's theological. That's why you suffer. That's why the world hates you. And finally, the seventh thing we can learn from these stories in church history is we need to remember the glorious truth of victory. 
We need to remember the glorious truth of victory because it doesn't seem like victory when origin is put on the rack. It doesn't seem like victory when Christians are being flayed and it didn't seem like victory when Christ was stripped naked and beaten and put on the cross. And yet in that suffering, we have our victory. So don't be deceived by appearances. Don't be deceived by the feelings within you. Victory is Ours. And Christian victory starts with the suffering of Jesus Christ. Christian victory is found in the very sufferings of the stories I told you this morning. And the book of Revelation is a book about victory. It teaches us that because of Jesus' victory over sin and death, the church will also experience victory over the dragon and his helpers. And that is a truth that exists in every generation until Christ returns. We must remember that we are more than conquerors as we read in the book of Romans. And we must remember the glorious truth of victory. That just because we're suffering and just because it hurts and just because it's hard doesn't mean you're losing. It didn't mean Christ was losing when he was on the cross. Cross, Jesus was mocked in Mark chapter 15, Jesus was mocked and they said, why doesn't he come down from the cross if he's really the son of God? And ironically, if he had come down from the cross, then he wouldn't have won the victory. And so too, maybe we shouldn't be so eager to escape persecution. Maybe we should endure it. Keep our faith intact with dignity intact because this is how Christian victory is won through that suffering and through Christians who persevere in the faith even when it's hard. All right, so I hope you're encouraged by these stories. We're going to be talking about several other elements of church history as we move forward. Next week, Matt's going to be teaching us about King Alfred, telling us the story of King Alfred, and I'm very much looking forward to that. And then uh, the third and fourth week, Gage is going to be teaching us about medieval history, looking at some of the theology and some of the key figures in medieval history. So that's what we have to look forward to in the coming weeks of September Sunday School. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.